Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone, and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, the kitchen episode for Luke 15. Do you think it'd be alright if I could just crash here tonight? You can see I'm in no shape for driving, and anyway, I've got no place to go. This is the Lo-Fi Kitchen episode for Luke 15, like I just said, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the story in Luke 15, but then also um, chat a little bit about how it kind of connects with our stories today. If uh, you're new, you should go back and listen to the Luke 15 episode first, where we actually dig into the story itself, and I try and tell it as best I can about... Uh, what Jesus is up to in that chapter, but we're going to kind of reflect on that today. And you guys, I, I'm, I'm excited about this. It's, it's been a while between this and the last episode, and it was even a while longer between that episode and the one before that. Um, I haven't had a lot of time to do this, but I love it a lot. It's, 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 you know, my, my, the favorite thing I do kind of creatively. And, uh, I'm, I'm, so when I actually get to do it, I, I get all, all giggly and happy. And if you could see the smile on my face and it was making me think of this, um, you know, when you were a kid and your parents would let you drink soda, like would let you drink a pop. Um, and you would be so excited to drink it that you thought that fizz was like the coolest thing ever. And like, like I'm an adult now, so I think fizz is like the enemy and I'm always trying to get rid of it. But like when you would when you would pour a soda or get out of a fountain machine and you would just as a kid you would just stick your face right into it and you would you would feel the the fizzy bubbles of your ginger ale or whatever like all over your lips like I got fizzy lips you guys I'm I'm just excited to do this so let's go ahead and go right for it um, Luke 15 is a is a is a teaching if you listen to the last episode it's a bunch of parables where Jesus is sitting at a dinner and he's kind of criticized by some religious leaders and he tells them a bunch of parables. And, uh, I mentioned this in the episode, but we're going to kind of talk about a little bit about it more right here that when you read these parables, it's, it's very care. You need to be very careful. I think that you don't miss the central like points, not points or like themes or, or intentions or goals of the parables itself before you start, going too far. Um, I guess to explain that real quick, just to back up, um, all my life I've been going to churches or Bible studies or been reading books or hearing sermons, you know, all that kind of stuff where we would think about Bible stories together or hear someone give their like interpretation of it. And it seems like all often too quickly, the question becomes, what is this passage telling us to do? The problem with that is, is some, I might even venture to say most parts of the Bible, aren't really trying to tell you what to do about anything. Um, they're trying to teach you about something else first, from which you might be able to figure out and ask good questions about what you should do if those things are true. So I think I made the argument in the Luke 15 episode where uh, we basically discussed like, like these parables are often read as if they're about us. And maybe it's better to start first by not thinking that the parables are about us at all, or maybe aren't even about the people that Jesus is talking to at the moment, like he told them a parable about them or something like that. It seems like first, because the central character that does most of the action and is present in most of the story of each parable isn't the 
the the person who's kind of like a the the substitute for a human person. It's it's the god. There's like a god character in each story, and the so story centers around them and their actions. So I think first, the the question behind these parables and how Jesus came up with them, and therefore the first question I would encourage us to think about first are, well, what is God like? Because there are stories that illustrate what God is like, in certain situations at least. And therefore from that, once we've, once we've kind of like extinguished the question, if we ever could, about what is God like according to the story, then like what does that mean for us? So, you know, in, in each parable, this is the parable of the shepherd who goes after the, the one lost sheep. There's the parable of the woman who searches desperately for the one of ten lost coins. And then finally we have this parable of this father who has two sons. And uh, and how the, the father like goes after and embraces one son and then has this exchange with another. And so it would be it would be bad of us to first ask, well, what are which son are we? You know, which is the common sermon that I've heard about this parable. Um that would be like going back to the coin thing and being like, well, what kind of coin are we? You know, like, and I guess, I guess maybe in an evangelical community, they pro- they pro- I probably did hear it like that. Like, are you a lost coin? You know what I mean? Like, do you need to sit down and pray a certain prayer so you're not lost anymore? Or something like that. As opposed to looking first at the, at the point of, oh my gosh, like God is like a shepherd who goes after the, the sheep and then invites everyone to rejoice. God is like a woman who searches desperately for what she's lost and then invites everyone to celebrate. God is like a father who chases into that field to get that son, you know, and then invites the second son in as well. And if that's what God is like, then what in the world do we do about it? And so the titles of those parables shouldn't be, you know, the parable of the sheep, the parable of the coin. It should be the parable of the shepherd, the parable of the woman, the parable of the father. Um, or at least I think those are better titles. And so then we can consider how we would respond if we also believe that that's what God is really like, if we agree with what Jesus seems to be presenting. Um, in particular, let's let's look at the, at, the, at the third parable, the one of the father. Um, I like the shepherd one, and I like, I like the one about the woman, but let's quickly... Um, uh, th- this parable of the father with the two sons has... Um, it's, it's popular for a reason. There's something about it that really entrances people um, and kind of catches our eye in a way that a lot of other teachings of Jesus can kind of just roll off our backs. Um, but this one sticks with people, and so I kind of want to dig into it because I think it's I, I also think it's really good. It's meant a lot to me. Um, so if Jesus tells this parable, the first and foremost answer an unasked question, well, what is God like um, to his audience? It's... God is like a father who gives away everything he has to his kids. Like, even if it makes the father look bad to behave this way, to give so generously, to give to kids that are stupid or bitter or selfish or wasteful, God is like a father who who would give away everything, would give away the inheritance and then would say something like, Everything I have is yours. You just kind of have to ask for it. God, according to this parable, if we agree, is like a father who isn't worried that he's giving away too much. God 
The, the father character in the parable isn't anxious about that. Oh, no, but if you take your inheritance early, that won't leave it. There's, you know, there, there's, there's never a question of, of oh, no, it's, it's gone. It's, it's, he's never worried that he's giving away too much. He's never worried that things are going to run out. Um, he, the father character is never worried that the neighbors are going to make fun of him or look on upon him even scornfully or even like banish him from the community for being such a foolish dad and putting up with so much guff from his kids. Um, in this parable, Jesus is painting a picture of God as someone who does not withhold anything good. Like Jesus seems to think that God is like a father who seeks out his lost kids and brings them home. Even if that means that they must do it all over again. Like the father cuts the younger son off in his speech. Like, and he doesn't require any promises or pledges or anything like that. He just says, put the robe on him and get him inside. We're going to throw a party. That's the kind of God that God is, according to Jesus. God is, is like a father who doesn't get his kids back by really requiring anything of them or even punishing them for their, their badness, but... In fact, this father gets his kids back by throwing them a better party than the one that they had on their own. Like, the younger son leaves to go party. He comes back, the father says, you want a party? I'll give you a party. Like, the father just loves these two sons as selfish and as, like, conflicted and as, like, bad kids as they might be. And that's what Jesus thinks God is like. Isn't that interesting? Like that, the question should pierce us, especially if we're religious. Should, should cause us all to stop for a minute and just think, is that what I really think? Is that what my church really thinks? Is that what my religion really thinks that God is like? Is God really like this father? Maybe we don't want God to be like that father. Maybe we that's not what we want. But maybe we do want it, but we just don't. Do we really think that that's what God is like? Um, if you're not religious, you know, the question would be, is the world something that, that gives and that doesn't withhold the goodness and offers a lot to us that we should be grateful and thankful for? But maybe we just don't see it all the time. We'll dig into that more in a little bit. Um, but only after dealing first with this question of the God, like the theological lesson of the story, can we begin to understand what it means for Jesus, for his audience, and for us as well. So now, like, if we have this clear picture, clearer, I guess, picture, this kind of summary of what the father in the story is like, now let's look at the sons as kind of stand-ins or substitutes for people that we might know or even for ourselves. Let's see if they connect with our story. Um, the sons, I think, and I didn't really think this until the most recent time we read the story, but the sons show us that none of us, like neither of us, knows what to do with a God as good as the one that Jesus thinks that we have. Like, Jesus thinks that God is like a father who just gives and gives and takes care and invites back and reconciles and is generous to and, and, and invites back into sonship, not to slavery or to servitude. 
And none of these sons in the end, like if you look at both of them, know how to properly respond to their dad. If their dad, when their dad is being so good, like they don't know what to do. Like the younger son is spoiled at the beginning and he comes back and then he just kind of takes everything and goes in and has a party. We don't hear if it like changed the way he views the world or looks at God or looks at his dad. Or we don't even know if he was really even repentant because the little speech he had planned was kind of like a a half bummed apology, you know, um, we don't, we don't know if he gets it. And then when we get to the eldest and later, we don't know if he gets it either. I mean, the younger son, I mean, his problem, at at least at the beginning, is just that he's just so selfish. I mean, he thinks the best way to live, to get what he really wants, um, the best way to get that is to get away from the generous father. Like, and so he's misidentified. Like the good thing isn't the father. The good thing is the money the father has, the land he could offer, the inheritance that should be coming his way. Um, and so the good thing isn't being a son. Like it's the money being a son could offer. So he asks for early and then he leaves. He abandons them fully to go enjoy it on his own. Like almost, almost like protective. Like I want it now so I don't lose it later. The most important thing the money. And it's like, he's, he's experienced all this goodness from the father his whole life so far, but then he objectifies it by saying, this is what's good. And this is what I want most. It's, it's the money. And he goes away with it. Oh man. Like he, the father is so generous and he doesn't know what to do with that. He's cause, cause he's put his treasure in the wrong place. His heart is after the wrong thing. He thinks it's the money when it's actually the dad. And so because it's the money, he wants it now. He has to get it now. He has to protect it. Like money is a limited thing. Goodness from his father seems to be unlimited, but the money is limited. Like there, he only gets a share of it. So he has to take it now. He has to protect it. This, this younger son is looking at the world through what we could call a point of view of scarcity. Like, Money is finite. And if that's what he really wants, he has to take all he can get and he has to go away with it and get what he really wants, like from the world. Like, he doesn't want to wait. Like, he's looking out for himself. He's just selfish because he's looking at the world as if all the good things aren't endlessly flowing, that they're all, in fact, scarce and limited in quantity. And then you look at the elder son by the end of the parable, like his big problem isn't, isn't like surface selfishness. You could say it's like comparison that then like reveals selfishness. Like when the younger son gets all this good stuff, only then does he really complain or at least that we hear him complaining, but you realize that he's been looking at it all along. Like you've never given me so much as this or this, like he has gotten more in the past and he's getting more now his problem is that he's comparing himself to his younger brother as opposed to just enjoying what he gets from the father as well i once had a counselor tell me i think i might have shared this in the podcast before because it's it's become like a life lesson that i that i bring to my mind often that comparison at least comparing ourselves to others is the quickest way to suffering. 
And the more I've thought about that and lived with that, the more over the years I've seen it to be true. And so this elder son, like, like he's, he's suffering because he's comparing what he gets compared and in contrast to what his brother gets who doesn't deserve it, you know? Um, so you can, you can, I empathize with this elder son because he's saying, you know, like I've gone unseen. My work has gone unnoticed. Like I haven't been properly valued or respected by you. I've worked so hard and now that's all just been a waste. Like I should, I should have earned more than this. And so you realize behind the elder son's point of view, he also has a problem with looking at what the father has to offer through a lens of scarcity. Like there's only so much to go around and you're wasting it on my younger brother who just, who just blew it all on prostitutes. Like he's just going to do that again. Or even if he doesn't do it again, he doesn't deserve it. Like the parable should have ended already. Like that wisdom really lies, lies with the elder son. Like, you know, like, like my brother is a grasshopper and I am an ant and I should be the one eating this winter. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's all through the view of scarcity. Cause if it was unlimited, would he care how much the younger son gets? Cause he might have, he might be experiencing even more if that, if the younger son is just missing out on it. Cause he's just too stupid to really enjoy it. But no, it's like, you've already wasted a third of everything we have and everything we have is limited on this boy. Don't waste more on him. Why does he get a calf and I get a goat? So the problem also for this elder son is that he doesn't enjoy the relationship and the goodness of the father because he only sees what other people are getting. And he has in mind what he's not getting as well. And I think that that connects so deeply with so many of our stories. Um, Because I think the problem for a lot of us comes from viewing the world, even all the good things in the world, through a lens of scarcity. Like, there's only so much air, there's only so much food, there's only so much land, there's only so much space, there's only so much money in the world. And so therefore, if I think I need those things, I'm going to go get them. Like, everything is a race, it's a competition, and you need to get what you want and protect it, and maybe even hurt for it or kill for it. Whether it's, you know, money, space, land, food, air, like how much of our human history like breaks down to that story of a history of horrible conflict and suffering over people who viewed the world as being scarce in its goodness. And those are only the material, like objectified things, but about the intangible things, love, respect, peace, or even just safety is an intangible thing that we might believe is scarce. So we need to go get it wherever we can and do whatever we can to get it for ourselves or for the people we value more than others most, the people closest to us. And that has driven us to do a lot of really horrible things. And even if we haven't done horrible things, maybe we're like the elder brother. And because we see other people getting it and we believe that love is scarce, that food is scarce, that money is scarce, that goodness is scarce, that peace 
and safety are scarce. When other people get it, we don't celebrate. We just get bitter and hateful. A lot of my life, I've been working in, you know, um, religious communities. And unfortunately, this scarcity mindset, like, plagues us there as well. Because there's only so much space, we think, available in the kingdom of God. Like, there's only, as if there's only so many rooms, you know, in God's kingdom. As if there's only so much space in heaven and we need to fight for proving ourselves to be one of the people that gets invited in, that gets like some sort of golden Willy Wonka ticket, you know? Um, Because some people have, if it's scarce, then that means some people have to be in and some people have to be out. And even amongst the people that think they are in, only some of us are really in or more in than others. Or maybe some of us, maybe we'll all get invited inside, but some of us have just a better place, you know what I mean? than others. We have a scarcity mindset when it comes to God, and therefore we've gone out and we've spoken against and we've protested and we've waged war even against others to try and earn and keep our space in the kingdom of God. Or maybe we've even shunned people from our lives and kicked them out of our communities because there's only so much of God's goodness to go around and we can't be associated with you because you might ruin it for the rest of us. Sometimes even those of us who believe that God exists and that God is good, that God is loving and graceful and has favor on us, we get twisted by the idea that God's love and forgiveness and grace and favor is a limited commodity. So we'll fight for it. Or even if we don't fight with others, we'll just slave our lives away for it in a meritocracy where we're constantly worried about losing it and working so hard to get a little bit more of it, just to get a little bit of that God, you know? Um, Or maybe even if we're not active in that kind of, or driven in that kind of thing, maybe we just find ourselves being so upset when we see someone else getting what looks like the love and the grace and the favor of God because that means that we're not getting it or we're not getting it enough. And so one of my favorite quotes from uh, comes from um, a filmmaker named Kevin Smith. And in one of his movies, he has a religious character say, you don't enjoy your faith, you mourn it. And I heard that, I remember in high school and that hit me deeply. And when I read the story, I, I see an elder son who doesn't enjoy the relationship with his father, and even the younger son who doesn't enjoy the relationship that he has with this dad who seems so good. Like some of us might kill for a dad like that. But they don't enjoy it. They mourn it. One son hates it so much, he steals it and then he leaves. And the other son sits and throws a tantrum because the whole time he doesn't, he hasn't seen it. He doesn't experience the goodness He's withheld himself from it. He's been mourning it all the time, every day. And so they don't enjoy it. Like, that's that's crushing to me in the end, and yet I see us doing those same things every single day. Like, for me, like, just to speak personally, I do kind of, like, what I might call the reverse elder brother, where um, I see 
people getting good things, what looks to me like I might be like, yeah, like, like that was something good, you know, whether I think it came from God or not, but it, it's, it's even worse when it, it seems to be like a God kind of thing where I'm like, oh, like that person is so, has been given so much talent or that person has been given just like some just lucky success, you know, like their project, their, um, their work, their, their family, their whatever has just gone so well. It's so full of grace because it looks so easy. I don't, I usually don't do kind of what the older brother does where I say they're a bad person, God, they don't deserve it. I usually turn it on myself or I'm like, well, good for them, but what about me? <laughs> you know, like what have I done that's so wrong like, do you hear the meritocracy language in that? What have I done, God, that's so wrong that life doesn't work for me the way that it seems to be working for them? Like, why does their life seem so, quote unquote, blessed when for me in this area or this area or even altogether, it's just been one hardship after another? And their story is ending in, in praise and adoration and my story is ending in like quiet, awkward silence. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I, for, for, and this, I think this just comes from, I mean, when I was a kid, the lesson I learned from my experience in the world was that the world is a scary, painful place. Like goodness in the world is scarce and the right kinds of people will get what they need and the right kinds of people who can prove themselves worthy or good will get what they need to enjoy life or to be okay or to be safe or to be loved. And if you can't be one of those kinds of people, then you're just out of, out of luck and the world will continue to be a more scary, more painful place for you. I mean, when you're a kid, this is kind of like, it comes in really simple ways where you're just like, wow, like kids, some kids are cool and people like them. And if you're not a cool kid, no one likes you. You know what I mean? Like it just sometimes felt that way. So like, like, like I remember in eighth grade, there was another kid named Kevin, seventh grade actually. Um, and we had so many similarities. Like we were both into a lot of the same stuff. We were both really into music. We were both in band together. We were both kind of funny. We were both kind of smart. We were both into computers, but for some reason, like everyone loved Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> the other Kevin. Um, like he was just like touched with a little bit of grace. Like, like in, in seventh grade, he had a haircut that worked for him. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like simple things like that. Or it was like, I, it wasn't until I was like 31 that I found a haircut that worked for me, for my head. You know what I mean? Like, and he had it figured out at like 10 or 11, you know? Um, and like, like it was one of the situations where like I could make a joke and like, he would laugh and then he would make the same joke louder and everyone would laugh. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Or just like playing drums came just a little bit easier to him. So he got like first chair, you know, on all the cool songs and band, you know, and stuff like that. And I was just like, we're, I'm, I'm so close yet. I'm like the dark side version of this kid. You know what I mean? And it was sad because I, I wanted friends and I wanted, you know, people to laugh at my jokes and I wanted to get, you know, the, the good songs. And I, I just, I, I couldn't get them no matter how hard I tried. And so I didn't, I tried not to hate Kevin. I was too nice of a kid to like hate Kevin, but I carried like a bitterness towards him instead. 
that really went down to my soul. Kevin has a TV show now on cable. <laughs> he does. He does for real. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I live in Flagstaff, which is great. You know what I mean? So there I go. You know, like there's still some of it that lives with me. I remember the first time I saw him on TV, I was like, there's Kevin. He's on TV. And, and my idea wasn't, oh, that's so nice. Good for him. It was, he made choices and was put in situations where that's where he ended up. And, and here's, here's where I am. You know what I mean? Like, that's hard. That's hard for me. Like, as I've even gone through a, a career in pastoral ministry, like, there's like cool pastors, you know? And it's like, we all took the same classes. We all went to the same school. And I even, you know, and it's like, and yet like their life and their work and their ministry within the church seemed to be touched with something where things went well for them and they didn't have to take out a lot of student loans and they got a job at a really healthy, good church right out of school and rose through the ranks and now have great jobs at really cool, sexy churches, you know, and stuff like that. And it hasn't been what stuff for me has, has just been hard. I went to one unhealthy church after another and I got like crap kicked out of me. And like, you know, I've, I've always just been worried that I'll just die in obscurity is how, the, how my mental story always ends. Cause I'm, I'm just not one of those cool pastors that it just kind of worked out for at least, you know, so far. Like, and it's weird because instead of seeing the, the 85% of my life and the 85% of my work in ministry as a gift and as very good, I focus on the 10 or five or 1%. That's just like, that is hurtful and is real and is frustrating. And it, I, I see other people who, who don't seem to have that five, 10 or 1% and it makes me bitter and angry and not hateful so much towards them. Although I think there's a weird kind of hatred about it. It's hateful towards myself. And there's a lot of the elder brother in that because I'm viewing the world through scarcity. Like I had to apologize to a friend this week who also has a podcast because um, I even told him, I was like, we kind of both started our podcast about the same time. And we, we both have a lot of similarities and stuff like that. And he's able to put out episodes like twice a week. And the stuff he talks about is great. And he keeps talking about these great people he's gotten to meet through the, through his work and his studies and his podcast. And like, and, and it just seems to be working so well, you know, and me, I'm like fighting to get one episode done. What every two weeks, three weeks sometimes, you know? And I'm just like, man, you know, I had, I had to tell him, like I I'd sent him a text. I was like, here's a moment of confession. I've, I've been jealous and, and surly. And so I haven't been listening to your podcast and supporting it like, like I want to. And I'm trying to get over that. So I'm going to get over that this week. So, but I, I wanted to let you know, because I'm sorry, you know, um, cause I'm viewing it through a scarcity mindset as if there's only so many podcast listeners in the world, as if there's only so many like people I could be doing good ministry and good work with at work or at home, as if there's only so many good moments that I can have that, that everyone else has much more opportunity to get. Like looking through the world through scarcity turns me from being able to tell my friend, it's so great what you're able to do with your work. And I'm so happy for you. And I'm so excited that, that what you're doing is possible. And that might mean that, that that might work for me as well. Instead, it's turned into the awful question of just like, 
why not me? Hey, God, like, you never gave me a freaking goat, you know what I mean? Like, it's so crazy, and it's so petty when it comes down to it, and I don't like it, and I don't like it because I want to be able to be happy for everybody. And I can only get there if I stop looking at the world as a place where everything is limited, or God's goodness is so limited that I have to fight for it or earn it or merit it. So I can turn my point of view around and I can just call my friends and be like, I'm so happy that you're getting to do good work. And I'm so happy that I get to do the work that I get to do. I get to do this. I cannot believe it. As opposed to saying like, I only get to do this, which is just, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. But, and if that's hard for you, then we're in the same boat together. We should start like a club or something like for surly folks. (laughs) Um, And I love that Jesus here in Luke 15 is telling a story where he's like, oh no, like it's not scarce. Oh no, you don't have to fight over room in the kingdom of God. There's room for everyone. There's not one fatted calf. We can have a fatted calf every day if we want to. It's not scarce. Like Jesus, maybe that's the key to how Jesus just gives everything away because he's not scarce. He's not looking at the world that way. He tells people, just give everything you can away and take nothing with you when you go on the trip. Forgive everybody because even what's inside of you will never run out. And God's favor falls on everybody. And here we have three little stories where it's illustrated that way. Like it's not scarce. The shepherd's not really worried about the 99. He's just worried about the one. He goes and he gets it and he takes it home. And the woman goes and gets that one coin. And the father has room for two sons, even after letting one of them blow his entire inheritance. Jesus doesn't have, has this idea that God is so good and God's goodness is so unlimited that there's no need to fight over it and that there's no requirement for earning it. Because God not only has so much to give, God freely gives it all. And in Jesus's point of view, you can be the younger brother, you can squander it, but there's just more to get afterwards. You can try and squander it, I guess is the better way to say it. It's almost too big. And I wonder if that's kind of almost part of our problem. Like maybe the goodness of God, if you're religious, or the goodness of the world is almost so big that sometimes it's hard to see. Like we forget that it's there. It becomes... The, the best things become so ho-hum, you know? And then maybe that's why we have to do things like, if you're religious, go to church. To, you have to go there like at least once a week to just be reminded, oh no, the world is, is, is good and God is good. Like other people have to actually turn to you and make you sing a song and then get up and give you a talk about the same story over and over and over again because it's so big that you'll forget it and you'll lose it in the midst of its own bigness. And maybe that's why we feel so good when we actually meet with a friend for lunch, because their friendship is almost so big that we take it for granted. And when we see them face to face, suddenly we're like, oh, we need to do this more often. We should do this again, because this is so good. Like, it's always there, but you have to go sit down across the table from them to be reminded that that goodness is there. I don't, uh, have you ever noticed that the days that you walk to work 
or walk to school? Are the days when you realize your town is a beautiful place to live? Because you start seeing all the little things about every storefront or every park or every tree or every house in your neighborhood. And you're like, oh, there's, there's so much to see. But if you don't take the time to go on that walk, if you just breeze by it in the car, if you don't put down your phone, you miss it. I had a moment earlier today um, where um, I've been trying to put the phone down more, especially when I'm with my son. And he was doing homework, and it was the perfect time for me to just pull out the phone and check Twitter, you know, or something like that, um, because he's, he's doing his thing. I don't want to bother him. But when he was done, we were going to read a story. And I was like, no, Kevin, put the phone down and watch your son trace the pencil over the letters. Because this is, this, this is too good to miss. And you've taken it for granted because it's so big. Like the goodness of your kid is so in, in front of you all the time that you actually miss the goodness when it's being embodied and lived out right in front of you. And maybe God is the same way or maybe the world is the same way and we get caught in this cycle of bitterness or comparison or selfishness because we're not taking the time to stop and actually see the goodness that's all around us. I mean... The goodness of the father in the story is all around these two boys. But we don't know, even by the end of the story, if either of them is really going to get the goodness. Like, get it in that they understand it, but also just get it in that they really receive it, as opposed to receiving what they think it really is. Like, the objectified version of, like, really is it about the money? Really is it about a goat? Really is it about a calf or a robe or a ring? You know what I mean? No. Like, the goodness isn't the inheritance. The goodness isn't the goat, the calf, the ring, the robe. The goodness is the father himself. And it's the party the father's having. It's not the object. It's like the existence. It's the relationship. It's the orientation that they would have towards each other and towards their father. Like, and so... For, you know, Jesus is teaching this idea that, like, the goodness we get isn't the money. In fact, Jesus tells you to give all the money away. Like, the goodness is the relationship you could have with a God who is just always rejoicing, you know? There's a guy named Brennan Manning that I really liked. Um, he died recently, and he was a writer, and he wrote this once. A saint is not some—I'm sorry. A saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God that makes sense like it's not someone who does all the right things like that doesn't make you a saint a saint is that you are with god and you've experienced god's goodness that's what makes you a saint you know and so the punchline of this story is that neither brother responds right neither of them really sees the father appropriately you know one is selfish one is bitter you know um and, and according to the ancient parable, like we would expect the one who behaved right, behaved like what we often think a saint is, someone who behaves good, is good, you know? We would expect them to experience the goodness, but he doesn't in the story, at least not yet. Like he's invited to it at the end, but we don't get his response. And we don't get the response of even the younger brother. Like he goes inside, but that's it. We don't know if he's changed his life and changed his ways or decided to live differently, or is like, oh no, I should have never left, you know what I mean? Like, we, we don't 
No, but maybe it's beckoning us to look at ourselves and say, if I believe that God is like this father and that he's giving and giving so freely and that it never runs out, am I receiving that? Am I seeing it? Is it around me? Or am I selfish or bitter because I think it's scarce? I, I, I had this fun thought. You think reading the story that the younger son is the one who squanders. But he's trying to squander something that never runs out. It's actually the elder brother who's the true squanderer. Because he's squandered all the precious time over the years that he's lived with this father. Where he could have been fully enjoying being with his father. He squandered it because he reveals at the end that he never saw how good it was. He never understood how good he had it. He never saw that his dad was someone who was willing to give him everything that he had. It's only at the end that he's invited to once again hear that everything the father has is his. He squandered so much time. And maybe that's something that's actually finite. That's interesting. And I, th I think Jesus, his, his story ends with this challenge. If we're going to accept all that the father has as theirs, like if, the, if this boy, if this elder son is going to accept everything that the father has, like that he's invited to, that means he also has to accept the younger brother as his again as well. Remember that twist at the end of the story where the, like, the older brother is like, this son of yours is boo 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 like he's being a jerk. And the dad is like, but this brother of yours was lost and is found, you know, was, was dead and is now alive, you know? Like the father is, is again inviting him like, oh, if you're going to come into the party, like, yes, everything I have is yours, but part of the package is your brother. Because you won't get it otherwise. Like you won't understand it. You won't receive it. You won't see how good this is until you're also able to receive your brother again as well. And that's a big challenge. Like Jesus is challenging his audience. Like he's talking to these religious leaders and he's like, look, if you want everything that God has, then you have to accept these sinners, these tax collectors, these drunkards, these goofballs, these sick people as well. You have, they're part of the package. You have to accept them as your brother and sister. And so this story invites us to see the world in such a drastically different way than we often fall into. To see the world not through scarcity, but through endless and limitless, like favor and goodness. And that doesn't mean denying, you know, what we've missed or what we've lost, or what hurts us, or anything like that, but realizing that, that that even pain and suffering doesn't mean that there's an end to goodness, or hope, or favor, or love, or respect. Because maybe it will even well up from within us in places where it seems to be completely absent. It's a good story, you guys. I hope you liked it too. And I hope that we all see how much goodness and favor there is all around us. And I hope that seeing it 
makes us grateful. Remember, guys, gratitude and wonder. There it is again. I hope we see how much goodness and favor there is all around us. That's the wonder. And that seeing that wonder makes us grateful. And I hope that practicing this seeing it and then practicing this being grateful for it eventually transforms us in a way that we will realize and accept and receive each other as a brother or sister of our own. And that then in embracing them, we would go together into the party. Hashtag red cups in heaven. Thank you guys for making it through one more episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. I hope it was a gift for you. It was a gift for me, even in, in throwing it out there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What did you get out of the story? Does the story connect deeply with your story at all? Does it not at all? Is there something about it that you're like, this is not mine, or this is not the world? Um, please tell me. I'd love to hear it and learn from you. Um, you're going to hear the tag soon where you hear about ways to get in touch with me, but uh, it's through all the usual means. I'll, I'll see you guys around on Facebook or email or text or whatever. Again, if you're in Flagstaff, uh, get in touch with me. We'll go out for pizza. And uh, especially if um, you are part of a like a Gin Blossoms cover band that needs a, a singer or a, or a drummer, let me know. It'll be good. I'm not as good as Kevin, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm decent. All right. I'll see you guys later. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.